All right, well, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, that would be wonderful. As you get there, grab your Bibles, uh, digital, print, you know, whatever you brought this morning. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat in front of you, and you can grab that and uh, reference that. But you need to head on over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. As we continue walking through the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, we are going to get into chapter 3 and spend our better part of our morning, if not the whole part of our morning, working through verses 1 to 15. So uh, before we get in there, before we hop into the text, let's just pray and uh, just ask and invite the Lord to just come and meet with us in a special way. Would you join me? Well, God in heaven, we we here now are going to look at a text, look at a, a set of verses from your word that not just describe what life here is like, but actually go so far as to describe what you are like. And Lord, it's in that second part that I'm just incredibly mindful of that, that challenge to faithfully describe you how you describe yourself. And so God, just the thought of us in these next few minutes coming together to try and think about and meditate on and somehow understand not just the complexities of our world, but you is an incredible feat. And so God, we we pray that you would be gracious to us. God, I pray that you would guard my mouth and my word from error, that what I would say would indeed be accurate to not just what you've said, but but who you are. God, we pray for minds to understand, and hearts that don't grow cold at these truths, but rather melt like butter under the weight and intensity of you. And so God, we pray that you would come and reveal yourself to us this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 really begins to take a, a major shift in perspective. Up into this point through Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon has been be, be just continually asking the question, what is life like under the sun? And he begins to make observations about that life under the sun, and he begins to conclude in, in very real ways some very pessimistic 
conclusions or realities about life under the sun. That those who aim their days at chasing pleasure are going to find that pleasure does not support the weight of life and will disappoint. Those who aim their days at chasing wisdom will will get a good thing because it's better to be wise than to be foolish, but will still find at the end of life that that wisdom didn't actually do anything to alter the final reality of their life, and the reality of wisdom means that they're that much more acquainted with the disappointments of life. Hard work is really the same conclusion that he's made, that... Those who aim their days at working hard, building the portfolio, leaving the nest egg, and all of those things which have wisdom to them, but if that's the ultimate goal, they find themselves sorely disappointed for a whole myriad of reasons. And in the beginning verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon continues to think through life under the sun. But he does something really significant in verse 9 through verse 15. His perspective shifts and it changes in a drastic and dramatic way because he is going to provide us with really what amounts to be the first extended section of God's role in what happens under the sun. He has now moved the perspective. When you get to verse 9, the perspective shifts from under the sun or under heaven to what is beyond the sun because that would be a way of describing where God himself would be, beyond heaven because God would exist in those places and spaces. And he, he, he works so clearly at describing for us who this God is. And quite frankly... This may be one of the most difficult passages in Ecclesiastes that we will have to wrestle with. The text here today actually will make me confront, and it may make you confront, and that's part of what I prayed for, what I say I believe and want and what my heart oftentimes feels. Because our text today clearly asserts that God is in control and has purposed every part of my life, both the pleasant and the painful. Now, if we can just be honest, there's a very real part of me that would rather or, or really honestly does want to glorify the Lord with every part of my being. I mean, if you would ask me, do you want that? I would say in all honesty, yes, I want that And there's a very real part of me that believes beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is completely sovereign, he is completely in control, and he has purposed all things in my life, both the pleasant and the painful. And our text this morning acknowledges that. However, there's a very real part of me that honestly would rather glorify God just through the pleasant times and completely skip the painful And if he could do that, I would vote for that. God, I don't want the pain. Just give me the pleasant. He hasn't given me that option yet. And I'd probably be foolish for voting for what I think would be better. Because I'd rather not have to deal with the pain. I woke up this morning to a text from my mom that came in at like 5.50 or so. That my dad was taken to the ER this morning. And he's now home. They didn't find anything, but he went with intense pain that um, was presenting itself like a kidney stone. But yet all tests indicate that 
there's no stone there. And it's, okay, well, what is that? And is it something greater? Is it just, you know, what, what, in, what goes there? And, and, and so I found myself confronted again this morning with this reality that there is a prayer that often in my life I have found myself terrified to pray. And it's real simple. It's got seven or eight words in it, maybe not even that many words, but it's this, Lord, do whatever it takes to bring you glory. That prayer, quite frankly, terrifies me because that prayer is one that says, okay, God, if you're more glorified through the pain, I'll take it because I want you to be glorified. But yet, we've just already acknowledged that I I probably wouldn't vote for that if given the option. And I found myself this morning, I mean, oftentimes I've thought through it in regards to my kids and my wife, but in in regards to my dad. Just glorify yourself. One of the most difficult parts of our adoption process was the weekend that we had to decide how much pain we were going to invite into our lives. Not because a two-year-old is a bit of a handful to deal with. I mean, that's kind of a separate issue. But when considering adopting a heart baby, there's very real concerns that he might not even make the flight home. And we spoke with experts Ultimately, we ended up speaking with the surgeon who actually did his surgery. Said, hey, do we need oxygen on this flight? Is he even going to make it home? How quickly after we get home do we need to get him under the knife? And, and there's still no guarantee. It, folks, I, I, my, my, my son Tobin has to get an antibiotic whenever he's going to go to the dentist. Because what is inside of his heart is foreign, and the risk for a dental cleaning to introduce bacteria into his body that could cause that foreign object to fail is real. We found ourselves having to figure out how much pain are we willing to invite into our lives. In many ways, you don't get the choice about what your biological children come out with, but here we had a choice, and it was incredibly difficult. How much pain are we inviting in? And I'll just be real honest with you this morning. I quite frankly feel like I don't have the life experience to even teach this text. That someone maybe that has experienced a type of loss like Job would be far better suited to walk through these verses. That someone who's experienced injustice like Joseph would be far better experienced to walk you through these verses. Perhaps someone like Peter or Paul who experienced persecution or, or quite frankly, even the other believers around the world. I mean, 2016 had the most Christians martyred out of any year to date. And they've got certainly family members that would be far more experienced and, and capable, I think, of walking you through this Because this text is going to make us confront not so much what we believe about the pleasant things in life and the good things as much as it does the pain. And God's 
role in that, in his sovereignty over it. And if we really press his sovereignty to its biblical and logical conclusions, then, then we're, we're actually going to be this morning confronted with the fact that God does control all of it and he has purposed it. This text makes us really, it challenges us to see God as consistently sovereign and not inconsistently sovereign. And to be quite honest, there's a real part of me that, that will struggle with that. I believe it. I may not all the time feel it. But yet, as I consider the alternate options, I, I find myself not really knowing where else I would go because the three main options that you would perhaps have before you as alternate uh, conclusions or perspectives would be one, to just completely deny the existence of God and to believe that everything is just now the product of random chance and, and that it, there's just nothing that, 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 that speaks to the existence of God. And so, you know, it's just all, it's all time, it's all chance, it's all evolution. I, I mean, it, quite frankly, you could even say karma, which is just probably a, a more of an offense to the Lord than anything. And I'm just amazed, quite honestly, how many people believe in karma but will bristle against the idea of God's sovereignty. Because karma will say that there's an invisible force in the universe that is balancing everything out. But if we give that force a name and say that his name's Yahweh, that his name's Jesus Christ, I don't want anything to do with him. Give me my karma and then we'll just kind of let's see how things shake out. It's just quite frankly astounding how many will take that philosophy and completely ignore what the Bible would say. The second option that you might be uh, able to choose, again, is just, quite frankly, unsatisfying because it would say that God is powerless over our suffering and pain. That he, he knows that it's there, it's part of the world, but he can't do anything about it because he's powerless. He lacks the ability, and, and quite frankly, we've just lost who the Bible says God is anyways if we go there. Uh, the third option is God's unaware about what is coming. That, that God just doesn't really know. That you're caught off guard and caught by surprise at, at the bad news. And he was just as much caught off guard and caught by surprise. And he's unaware of what's going on. And he's learning in real time as you are. And that, quite frankly, is incredibly unsatisfying as well. And there's really quite difficult conclusions you'd have to work through if you took that perspective. And so I, I don't, I, I believe in God's sovereignty because it, it, quite frankly it feels logical as you work through it. It's not that it's without its difficulties, it just has the least difficulties for me. But it's also exactly what the Bible teaches. And let's just be honest and let's just be real here. We haven't even looked at the text, but as we look at verses 2 to 8 in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there will be people without a doubt experiencing every different season that Solomon writes about. There will be people in this room, and I know you are, that this past week you found out the test was clear. And there's others of you that the diagnosis is bleak. Some of you feel great physically, Others of you are waiting for the diagnosis, or you're waiting for a test to even try to figure out what the diagnosis might be. Some of you are in your first year of marriage, and some of you are keenly aware that there is a seat that is empty next to you. 
Some of you just dedicated your babies. Some of you grieve that you were never able to hold your newborn. Some of you, the job situation is awesome. Some of you are jobless. Some of you think that there was nothing greater for our country than President Trump to be elected and sworn in. And some of you think that there is nothing worse for our country than for President Trump to be elected and sworn in. Quite frankly, the list could go on and on. And what Solomon does in these 15 verses of Ecclesiastes, he, chapter 3, he gives us really some incredible gifts to try to understand and make sense of this world that we live in. And what we're going to see as we look in the text is that verses 1 to 8 really amount to an acknowledgement of life. This isn't a a, a pie-in-the-sky view of life. Solomon keenly and rightfully acknowledges that there are pleasant times in life and there are painful times in life. And he he just outwardly and upfront acknowledges that. And what you have in verses 9 to 11 that he comes back to in verses 14 and 15 is an expression of a conviction regarding who God is. And then sandwiched right in the middle of that conviction regarding who God is, is a command directing what we should do. As Solomon works through and and just quite plainfully acknowledges that God is sovereign over all things, both the pleasant and the painful, I, I do want us to just note right now before we get into the text that there can be well-intentioned believers who I think speak to God's sovereignty at times in ways that can be more hurtful and harmful. And think about it like, like this. If one of my kids comes to me with a boo-boo, I can, if I've determined that there's not really anything significantly wrong with them, I, I may kiss the boo-boo and Give them a little swat on, on the backside and send them on their way and, and you know, cheer them along. Or, or perhaps they, they really are just convinced that, they, that yeah, I need, there's a boo-boo and I need a Band-Aid, but there's, there's nothing bleeding, so why do you need a Band-Aid? And, and, but, but you give them a Band-Aid, right? You, you get the princess Band-Aid out or you get the Buzz Lightyear Band-Aid, whatever the, you know, the pirate Band-Aid. And, and you, you put the Band-Aid on them, but you know that there's nothing there. And, and I think there can be times when we throw around the phrase, well, God is in control or, or God's sovereign. And it can, it can feel to those who are experiencing those dark nights, like you've just given them a princess band-aid that actually hasn't ever really addressed the significant issues that are ailing them or paining them. And yet, from cover to cover, the Bible reveals God's sovereignty is not a princess or pirate band-aid to just be tossed around to convince you that nothing actually is wrong. It's intended to be the warmest of blankets on the coldest of nights. You know the ones that, that are heavy that you, you put on and you kind of sink a little deeper because there's a weight to them. And you give it enough time and your body heat kind of works itself out into that blanket and radiates back to you and you, you, you warm. And so I don't want to be trivial this morning. Because some of you are experiencing pain. Some of you are walking through the dark. And so to just simply throw around, well, God's in control. I, I don't intend 
for that to feel like a princess band-aid to somehow convince you that what it hurts isn't actually there. Because the text doesn't do that. The text acknowledges in verses 2 to 8, yeah, it's there. And then Solomon begins to draw some conclusions. So let's go to verses 2 to 8. You're going to see this acknowledgement of life, and we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to define all 28 of these seasons. That could be a different study for another time. What we need to, though, understand is that what happens is that you have seven pairs of, of opposites written. So you have 14 statements of opposites. You have 28 seasons of life. And you can just walk through and count them, but they're, they're formulated in seven different pairs. Well, in Hebrew poetry, the number seven is the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. But what also is being used here, and what Solomon does, is he uses a Hebrew poetry device that is intended to lead us to the conclusion that what he intends to describe here is absolutely everything. It's called a merimism. It's when you use contracting or contrasting opposites in order to cite not just those ends, but everything between them. And so when Solomon writes these phrases in verses 2 to 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he intends for us to conclude, we're talking about everything. Let's read them together. For everything, there you go, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pick up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time for love, a time for hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What Solomon is acknowledging is that under heaven, there is essentially a time for everything. And he intends to really leave nothing out. That what he has written has been done so and structured in such a way that we could look at the text and conclude. This man really intends for us to think that he is speaking of absolutely everything. And where he goes from there, beginning in verse 9, is to begin to give us this conviction regarding who God is. He asks this question in verse 9. It's the third time he's asked it. He asked it once in chapter 1. He asked it once in chapter 2. He's now going to ask it a third time in chapter 3. What gain has the worker from his toil? And we shouldn't anticipate that there's any other answer to be given than the answer that he's already led us to in chapter 1 and chapter 2. The answer is there's nothing to be gained. That everything that he has just listed, that there's not really a a gain to go and achieve that somehow allows you to find the ultimate fulfillment or the ultimate satisfaction that allows you to make sense of life because everything that he's just worked through and begun describing in chapter 1 and chapter 2 has said, if you try to find satisfaction or fulfillment in any one of those things, you will come up empty and you will find all of them greatly lacking. 
But notice now what he does in verse 10 as he continues to give us this conviction in regards to who God is. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Notice how you have the word time showing up again. You have the word everything showing up again. Quite frankly, I believe the word business in the beginning part of verse 10 is a way to just summarize everything that Solomon has just listed in verses 2 to 8. He's referencing all of life here. And notice where he gives credit to for where it all comes from. It's the business that God has given. There's one source of where the business comes from. There's one source of where the everything comes from. It comes from God. See, the affairs of life, the seasons of life that we are busy, that we busy ourselves with are given to us from God, both the pleasant and the painful. And this in, in, in many ways echoes what James has even said in verses 17 of his first epistle that we just studied a few months ago, that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights of whom there is no shadow due to change. You can see that, there, that these, these seasons are given to us by God, and we will be later told that all of them are, are they're a gift from God. Again, the pleasant and the painful. And verse 11 continues and he tells us, He has made everything beautiful in its time. It's interesting for us to note that Solomon never tells us to go and figure out what season of life we're in and to, to, to act correctly or, or to, to try to move our seasons of life. The seasons of life that he listed are just quite frankly, a description of what life is like. But he concludes that God has made everything beautiful. You see, there's beauty to be found in the everyday, in the ordinary. There's beauty to be found in the difficult, in the spectacular, in the mundane, and even the painful, because behind these seasons, Solomon tells us, is one who is standing, who has made them all beautiful and has a purpose for them in our lives that we may not have the vision to see right now, and that we're also not promised to ever understand this side of heaven, but he is doing something through the seasons of life that we find ourselves within the pleasant and the painful, and he makes them beautiful. And again, it causes me pause, because I would much rather just have the pleasant. And it makes us confront, what is, what is God doing in these seasons of pain? What, what, what is he doing? How is he controlling them? How is he purposing them? And Solomon continues with these convictions about who God is. In the second part of verse 11, we're told also, He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning. What Solomon here is saying is that God has placed within humanity a sense of the finality of this life and the eternal or the eternity of what happens before. 
Now, whether you are a believer and see that eternity as the presence of God, or whether somebody has come along beside you and said, if you don't believe in Jesus, that eternity is spent outside of the presence of God, you still have an understanding that once you take your last breath, there is no more breaths. And it does not take a biblical scholar, it does not take a philosopher, anybody can conclude that. And I think the text is telling us that there's, there's this innate sense to that that allows us to draw those conclusions, that what we have here and now is here and now, and then someday that ends, and what, when it ends, that will last a really long time. It's what drives us And quite frankly, it's what drives messages that we hear that says, you know, you only have one life to live, to live for God's glory. You only have so long to save for retirement. I mean, those are expressions that there's an eternity and a finality. There, There can be something discerned about the world that God has made that says and sees and understands that what I have here and now until the Lord calls me home is what I have, and then things look very different after that. It's what also leads us to conclude and understand that, you know, we just have a few years with our kids We don't have eternity with our kids here on earth. I read a study at one point that said, by the time your children are eight, you have spent 50% of the time that you will ever spend with them as their parent. I've got a daughter who's turning eight in two months. That stat is, quite frankly, terrifying, and I may just kind of worm my way into her life throughout the rest of her life to kind of break that stat and and just kind of hang out and sit in the back seat on the dates and all that kind of, meh. Not even the back seat. Like, I'll sit right in the mitten. Never mind. All right? This leads us to statements that you get 80 years to make a difference. There's good encouragement to make a difference in the world. But in stating that, there's also a realization you don't have forever. So there's things that we can discern about the Lord's actions, but yet we're incapable of knowing and discerning all of the Lord's actions. We can't figure out or find out or comprehend what God has done from the beginning. And so Solomon begins to acknowledge and he begins to describe this conviction regarding who God is and that he has given to us these seasons. He's controlling them. He's purposing them and he makes them beautiful, both the pleasant, the 14 pleasant things that he listed, and the 14 painful things that he listed. They're all given to us by God, and God is working a beauty in them and through them. And he moves now in verses 12 and 13 to walk us through how we're to, how we're to respond in many ways. And he says this, I perceive that there's nothing better for them. That's those who are working under the sun. That's those in these seasons. There's nothing better for them than to be joyful. He first identifies an attitude that we are to have. You and I are to be joyful regarding what, or or regardless of what season we find ourselves in. There's an attitude there, and it it echoes a lot of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, where you should rejoice when you're persecuted. 
That there should be a, an attitude of response that is actually a joyful one when you, when you suffer harm for the cause in the name of Christ. It's very similar here in concept. Solomon first identifies an attitude. You and I are to be joyful. Secondly, he now identifies an action, and then will give us a few ways to think through that action. But he says, and to do good as long as they live. See, our, our attitude before the Lord as we, as we walk through life acknowledging that He is in control and He's purposing these things, both the pleasant and the painful, is to be joyful for what He has given us regardless of pleasant or painful and to aim to do good. And in verse 13, he continues, I think, to break it down a little further. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. Notice how that word toil is the same word Solomon uses in verse 9 to ask the question about what he wrote about in verses 2 to 8. And he concludes, this is God's gift to man. So you and I are to have an attitude of joy through life. The, play, the painful experiences of life, the pleasant experiences of life. We're to have a, a set of actions that sees that, that our, our pursuit is to do good and we're to celebrate and recognize as we thought briefly through last week that the most mundane activities in life have been gifted to us by God. That being eating and drinking and work. And I've shared this verse several times it's just because it fits what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31 whether you eat or drink in all that you do, do all to the glory of God. It's very reminiscent. There's echoes of what Solomon writes here as he considers who God is and commands us to do what we should. But in verse 14, he returns to this conviction of who God is and he says this, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. It, it. It's going to be very similar language to what Isaiah would write a few years after Solomon lived, where Isaiah, in quoting the Lord and writing down what the Lord said to his people, writes, My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purposes. Quite frankly, folks, that's what gives Phil and Sarah the confidence to go to China, to plant underground churches, to be in one of the most hostile places to Christianity and things concerning a biblical worldview because the Lord's counsel stands and His purposes will be accomplished. It's exactly what Solomon says. What God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. Look at this next verse. God has done it so that people fear before Him. God has done it so that people might glorify Him. In the Old Testament and even in the New, the idea of fearing God is an idea of recognizing who He is and who we are. 
It's not just being awestruck by God. Quite frankly, if we were given a, a picture and, a, and the ability to see and comprehend all of who God is, we would do exactly what every other character in the Bible who was ever given that vision did, namely fall on their face. And God does these things. He works these seasons. He makes them beautiful. He purposes them so that I may glorify Him. He continues in verse 15, essentially just re-summarizing what He has already said. That which has been, that which, or that which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Three statements, again, reiterating the sovereign control of God. God has done these things so that people may fear Him. God, through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42, 8, said, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. David writes in Psalm 23, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And David will even continue. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thy rod and thy staff are with me. That's not some floating rod and staff alongside David as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. The rod and the staff that give David the confidence to walk through the valley are there because the shepherd's holding them. They're not just floating next to him that he gets comfort from some inanimate object that is kind of hanging out on either side of him. He's comforted by the fact that the shepherd has the rod, has the staff, and has the authority and the ability to lead him through the valley of the shadow of death. Perhaps the most painful of life's experiences. See, what you and I are experiencing today, wherever you find yourself on the the opposite ends of the spectrum, either the pleasant or the painful, it's it's not outside of God's authority. It's not outside of His knowledge. It's not outside of His control. It's not outside of His purpose. See, and we love we love to quote Romans 8.28 here, right? And I will because it fits. That God works all things together for those who love Him for good according to those who have been called. But that's not intended to be a pirate or a princess band-aid given to you to convince you that something doesn't hurt. That's what I do to my kids when I'm trying to convince them that no, you really don't have whatever you think is causing your arm to fall off at the minute. Here's a band-aid. Go get back in the game, champ. That's not what God's sovereignty is ever intended to do. It's intended to meet you and I in the acknowledgement of real life and to say, here's the warmest of blankets, sit underneath it, allow its weight to press down on you, and to comfort you. And David in Psalm 23 writes about this. 
Solomon writes about this. New Testament authors write about this. And it, it, from cover to cover, there is this resounding theme in Scripture. And these themes have actually led some of the most talented songwriters of our day to write songs for our day that express these truths. So the song we'll sing as we close here this morning is one that we have sung and are familiar with that just simply says and acknowledges never once did we ever walk alone. Never once did you leave us on our own. God, you are faithful. You are faithful. See, some of you this morning will stand and sing those words in praise for who God is and how He has provided. Because you've been given whatever hindsight has been available, or there's been enough time and you're able to look back and you're able to see the hand of God and Him providentially moving through that in such a way that you can go, oh my goodness, I get it and I glorify Him for it. I wouldn't have chosen it, but I wouldn't want it any other way. And yet others of you will sing these words from some of the darkest, deepest places in that valley of the shadow of death. And you'll be very much like the father of the young boy that comes to Jesus in Mark 9, who's just simply there to say, can you help? Because I believe you can, but you've got to help my unbelief. And so we sing. Because it's what we do. It's what God's people have done in the pleasant and the painful throughout history. God's people have sung. And so we sing. And we'll sing these words to guide and reflect our attention on the character of who God is and the faithfulness that he leads us 